You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health Podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now. Hello, I'm Teresa McKee, your host for A Mindful Moment. Thank you for joining me as we explore ways to increase mindfulness in our day-to-day experiences. In addition to our regular weekly podcast, we also have the privilege of interviewing experts from around the world to further our understanding of how to live mindfully. Today, we speak with Keith Fiveson, a certified professional life and recovery coach, contemplative yoga therapist, meditation teacher, and founder of the Work Mindfulness Institute. He's also the author of a new book, The Mindful Experience, Eight Strategies to Live Life Now. Thank you for joining us today, Keith. Well, you're welcome. It's nice to see you. Well, I've been looking forward to having this conversation with you about your book. It's a great manual for really living mindfully and very straightforward, and I appreciated that, as well as the reflections and exercises that you have at the end of each chapter. So I thought it was really great, and I appreciate it. Oh, good. Thanks. Uh, It uh, took a while, and uh, most of the book was written during the pandemic, uh, so I had some time. (laughs) Had some time to reflect. I'm hoping lots of people did some reflecting during this, and of course, it's not over yet, but hopefully soon. Speaking of that, because a lot of people are feeling a little out of whack, um, one of the things you talk about for the purpose of the book is to find balance in an unbalanced world. And I get a lot of questions about how to balance between work, life, all kinds of situations. And I was just curious if you have any thoughts about why we've become so unbalanced in our lives. It's a it's a really good question, uh, and you know the title of the book and the book itself is really about a whole life, a whole balanced approach towards mindfulness and living mindfully every day. So the eight strategies are there to really help balance us up. And part of the problem, I think, is really quite frankly, is trauma. I think we've uh, moved into a society that is dealing with loads of trauma. It's either implicit or explicit trauma. So implicitly, uh, we're getting trauma through the news. We're getting trauma through our TV, through the movies. You know, you don't hear a lot about good news. You hear a lot about, you know, trauma-filled news. And the movies themselves are really around the end of the world. I mean, there are very few movies that aren't about the end of the world or some alien being coming to save the world or some other thing. You know, and the thing about trauma, certainly implicit trauma or explicit trauma, which is, you know, really around a family person dying, someone being sick, something explicitly where we've gotten into an accident or there's some other issue that's going on. I mean, either or, either implicit or explicit, you know, it wires itself into the nervous system. You don't necessarily know that you've got it. It actually fires the brain and the cortisol levels in the brain and in the body through, you know, the amygdala and then through the kidneys. And we wind up with a lot of adrenaline. We're a coffee-based society. You know, lots, lots of people have coffee. 
Uh, so that actually feeds into the adrenaline rush. And then trauma feeds on itself. So when we're not in a trauma state or we're not in a, a state of fight or flight, you know, we're really wondering what's, what's wrong. You know, and that's where this default mode network, the part of our brain, the brain is always in problem mode. It's always in seeking uh, an issue or a, a problem to solve, right? So what's really happening in a lot of cases is we feel that we can't sit still. We can't, we, we have to be involved with something. We have to be doing something. We have to react in a certain way that really is not necessarily compassionate. So I, th I think in so many ways, we're seeking balance, but we're looking at the wrong things. So the food that we eat in our society is really very much of it is sugar-based or simple carb-based, and that turns into sugar. We don't get enough real exercise in the society. We're the only society in the world that has a, a real issue, not only in terms of the food that we waste, but the obesity of uh, the individuals. And we've got so many problems in terms of diabetes and uh, uh, heart issues. So I, I think we need to, you know, move away from the vehicle, put our hands up and move away from the vehicle in some way and start to take stock instead of living from the outside in, start living from the inside out. And that really is a big part of what the book is about. You know, how do we live from the inside out? versus the outside in, the things that really traumatize us. And then in the outside in area, how do we really put space between ourselves and those things that traumatize us? So that really is the essence of the book in a number of areas. And it really is about finding balance in those areas in an unbalanced world. Yeah, I think it's very needed right now. As I said, it's one of the most common questions I get is how do you balance life? And I totally agree. There's got to be a shift to the inside out because it starts there. When we get the inside balanced, it's much easier to deal with what's happening all around us on the outside. So I definitely mm -hmm. appreciate that. You mentioned exercise. Mm -hmm. And in the book, you talk about the importance of it, not only to increase mindfulness, but to improve memory. So I'm wondering, why is exercise such a must? One of the things that happens is you have to realize that, you know, when we're talking about mindfulness, it's not like the brain is sitting outside of the rest of the body, right? You know, it's, it's part and parcel of uh, the body and, you know, it's interconnected. So we've got this neurology, the neuroscience of the brain is, you know, the feel-good chemicals are serotonin, oxytocin. Uh, a sense of connectedness, a sense of balance, dopamine, you know, having the dopamine receptors. So when we're exercising and we're actually generating energy and we have that ability to go ahead and sweat and have the respiration system work, have our breath work, have our bodies connected to our brains, we have a sense of wellness. We have a sense of the ability to burn off calories, the ability to use all of the areas of the body. So a good example is, you know, think about how you might feel if you had a small little teeny little splinter in your toe. And that would be excruciating. You wouldn't be able to think, you wouldn't be able to concentrate, you wouldn't be able to do that, anything for that matter. So if we're not exercising, it's like the exercise allows us to take out the, the creaks and the cracks and, the, and use the muscles and actually get the blood flowing and get the 
um, serotonin and the dopamine and uh, the adrenaline working. So we're really, what it's doing is it's self-generating energy. And we are the recipients of that. And we're able to think more clearly and we're able to uh, really step away from stress in a more significant way as we're able to handle it. I love the saying that the uh, Marines have in their recruitment poster. You know, I'm a, I'm a vet and a lot of the book was uh, really based on a lot of the work that I did when I was in the service. But the Marines have uh, the saying that strength is the weakness leaving your body. I, I love that kind of concept, you know, because what we're doing is we're, we're generating more strength, we're generating more resilience, we're generating the ability to really be more with our breath. You know, that's also a very big part of uh, what I've talked about in the book is the idea of breath, you know, the idea of uh, what I call spear, the root word of breath. Uh, in Latin is spear, S-P-I-R, which is the same word for spirit or for aspiration or for inspiration or for respiration or for expiration. So it's just a question of what level do we want to use the breath at? And I think when we're at our optimal self and we're connected to our body and our mind, we're able to aspire for more things in the world and actually bring the breath into our actions and breathe life into what our hopes and dreams and plans are. Another area that's gotten, I would say, drastically worse over the past couple mm -hmm. of years is sleep. So a mm -hmm. lot of people are having trouble sleeping. They're not sleeping not long enough. They're not getting quality rest. And you talk about this in the book, and I'm wondering if you could share why rest is so important to our well-being, and what are some examples of how we can recharge mindfully? One of the things that's happening is that, as I said before, with trauma, we tend to worry a lot. Our minds tend to race. You know, this mind up here, uh, there's an area of the brain, I mentioned it before, the default mode network. And this is the self-referential area of the brain that's always working. You know, it's the part of the brain that is solving problems. And uh, when there are no problems to solve, it actually turns inward and it starts saying, you know, what's wrong? If what's wrong with you or what's wrong with this or what's wrong with that? And it starts looking for problems. Uh, that's what the purpose of the brain is. It's a problem solver or a meaning making machine. So, you know, when we go to sleep at night, it's really an opportunity for our brain to download or sort out, uh, if you will, uh, the problems of the world and really just kind of rest, be in a rest state. And that's what dreams are about. I mean, that's the, you know, that's the beauty of dreams is, you know, it allows us to really take a little vacation, take some time off and uh, come back to a refreshed state. It's sort of like, you know, having too many windows open on your computer, right? After a while, you don't have enough random access memory. You don't have the ability to do any more processing. And unless you turn it off and unless you reboot, um, you really don't have that refresh state, the ability to go ahead and uh, have new thoughts or new aspirations or new dreams or new visions. So part of the process of turning off at night is to really step away from media, you know, step away from all media, doing that an hour ahead of time and to start turning the lights low, to start looking at ways of 
you know, turning off things. Uh, and that's, again, another signal for the brain. It allows the pineal gland to go ahead and start being activated, which is also known as the third eye. It's that area of the brain that really starts to secrete uh, melatonin. And it's that area of the brain that starts to make us a little tired at night. Refrain from a lot of sweets, sugars. You know, a lot of people have sweet tooths. And there's ways that I start talking about in the book in terms of uh, food or fuel and really start to regulating that. You know, something as simple as if you like ice cream, regulate yourself on that instead of having a whole pint of Haagen-Dazs, you know, start to savor just a, a spoonful or a little teeny piece of chocolate or whatever, but start to tone down and then uh, put on some pleasant music, start to unwind, start to give yourself a break. Uh, and uh, reading is always a nice way to do it. Most people use their devices to read, but if you can start to look at a magazine or a book or whatever, and then set up your bed, use a cool room, uh, bring the temperature down generally uh, for the body. It's best if your room is set at 64, 65, even cooler would be fine. The body likes to snuggle up underneath the covers and then really start to talk yourself down. And one of the things that we talk about in the book is to look at doing a full body scan where you're literally checking in with yourself and telling your brain, okay, time to shut down. And then, you know, moving your awareness from your head to your face, to your neck, to your shoulders, to the upper torso, all the way down to the toes, if you can make it that long, because that's all part of the beauty of at least starting to settle down and giving yourself that space. So it's really around self-soothing, you know, and many people have not learned how to self-soothe. And that's, I think that's part of the learning process is to self-soothe to allow yourself to shut down all of the windows, including all of the spaces in the body, and then, uh, you know, reboot and uh, wake up refreshed and renewed. And that really gives you an opportunity. It gives us all an opportunity to give some space, give some breath to some new, you know, ways of thinking. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, I would suggest to all of our listeners that if you don't yet value the importance of rest, and not just sleeping, too. I think we need little restful breaks during the day, even if it's one or two minutes, but just a chance to breathe and calm down and then go back to what we're doing. But I would suggest just try it one night and notice the difference in how you feel the next day versus how you feel not getting good rest every night, which is really a problem right now. So, Well, Teresa, I don't know if you remember, I've started to learn how to take naps in the book. My wife had insisted that I put in this picture of me taking a nap, and it's not, a, not necessarily a flattering picture, but uh, still the same. We all deserve it. We all deserve a little nap, a little closing of the eyes, and even if that's just a closing of your eyes and sitting down where you are, doing a self-check-in, an awareness again of the body, of the breath, of where we're at, and having a mindful moment, I think that's really important. It is. It's Funny, I'm always envious because I am not a power napper. I'm a person who, if I nap, it's like three hours. So I right. cannot take a nap during the day. I always want to, but I do take really regular pauses where I may just sit outside. 
notice my breath for a little while, come back in here. But it makes an enormous difference. And it's more productive. I, you know, I keep trying to tell people, you're not wasting time. You'll get more done if you do it. I just wrote yesterday something about the difference between the doing mode and the being mode mm. of the mind. And we don't spend enough time in the being mode. And so that's another form of rest. So even if you can't nap, I keep trying. I'm going to get there someday. But if, even if you can't nap, I agree with you. Just taking those pauses to check in or to notice your breath or, you know, I love stepping outside. I don't even have to think about the fact that I'm resting for a minute. It immediately changes really how I feel, how I'm being, mm-hmm. just to step outside, notice nature and come back to work. So thank you. Well, for is, that. Isn't that true? That's very true. Yeah. yeah. During the shutdowns that we had over the last two years, a lot of people did notice that perhaps their environments were not conducive to relaxing or being mindful or feeling comfortable or, you know, a wide variety of things. I noticed a lot of things I've never noticed. And I changed a lot of things in my home. Mm -hmm. But you discuss this in the book about how we can't always control our environments, say, for instance, at an office. But you give us a few tips on improving the spaces, whether it's at home or at work. And I was wondering if you could just share a couple of those with our listeners in case it might prompt some ideas for them. Sure. You know, this is uh, probably one of my favorite chapters in the book because uh, I I really do treasure the ability to really change our environment, you know. And there's simple things, there're little things. Having plants, you know, having the ability to clean your clutter, you know, clean your space and have a fairly well ordered space. It's cleaning your clutter with feng shui. I I talk about feng shui in the book. And, you know, there's uh, the whole idea of element theory uh, in feng shui and, and Taoist philosophy, which is, and I think it's a beautiful thing, where you use elements. You use, you know, water, you use fire, you can light a candle, a small little candle at your desk, have a little aroma therapy as well. You can go ahead and use lights, use, uh, you know, the ability to have shadows and I think within the environment, there are so many ways that you can create an environment for yourself with color, with lights, with plants, with sounds, wonderful music, you know, even the environmental sounds. We start talking about the environment. There's so many things that are man-made, if you will, um, that we start to lose track of those things that really do nourish us and feed us that give us oxygen, plants, going outside, taking a walk, taking off your shoes and just feeling the earth beneath your feet. So there's so many ways of doing that. Uh, And uh, water, you know, simply having something as simple as a bird bath and setting that up in your backyard or a little bird feeder. So there's so many ways of popping up the environment. It doesn't have to be big. Just a, a simple item, a very something that you treasure, something that's you know brings a sort of a, a good feeling to you. We talk about in the book is you know as above, so below, as below, so above. So if you're able to create this environment around you, this environment outside of you, and you're able to create a pleasant environment that smells right, that sounds right, that looks nice, that you know brings up nice feelings. They're very, very, very simple things. They get us out of our head as well about what's going on in the big picture. 
and really allow us to control and be more in the immediate environment, which is really important. We can't control what goes on outside in the rest of the world, but we can control what goes on in our little spaces and you know, set it appropriately. Yeah, I agree. It can be simple, but I think it's extremely powerful. And maybe everyone hasn't thought of that, that something as simple as a photograph that you love, right? If it's right there on your desk, every time you look at it, you're coming back in that moment, experiencing whatever feelings are again. So I love that. Yeah, yeah. And and I think that's that's a beautiful thing. When you're able to create a sense of the sacred, you know, if you're able to create a sense of the sacred in your immediate environment, where you're reminded of the things that are, you know, sacred to you, that's good. That's a wonderful thing. I continue to run into people in the trainings that I do that are concerned about mindfulness and their religion. And Hmm. you talk about this in the book, the difference between religion and spirituality. And I was wondering if you could perhaps share a little bit of that so that people can get a feel for how mindfulness does not need to interfere in any way with whatever religion you're practicing. Right. Well, I know that you know that I'm, uh, you know, I'm an interfaith uh, minister. Uh, I did my MDiv in interfaith studies and world religions. And uh, my, my father was Jewish. My mother was Catholic. And in the Catholic faith, you're the religion of your mother, uh, father. And in the Jewish faith, you're the religion of the mother. So I kind of fell somewhere in between the cracks. And it's been a very big study of mine. You know, people will say, well, what religion are you? And I say, I'm a Judeo-Christian, Buddhist, Taoist, Hindu. Is there any question? Because I think there are many paths, but for many people, there's one truth. And the truth is, how are you breathing life into your relationships and the world around you, into people, places, and things? I talk about the difference between religion and spirituality is like the difference between the menu and the meal. You know, uh, and that's a Joseph Campbell quote. And I love that quote because it really does talk about the fact that there are, and I use the other analogy that there are many boats on the ocean, you know, and some of them are like big cruise liners and they've got lots of passengers and they got a very clear destination and they've got a schedule and you follow the schedule and you follow the rules and Chances are they won't let you off the boat. You'll be able to make the destination, but you know at least that's the promise, right? And then there are some smaller boats, and then there are some people who are just on the ocean in a little dinghy, or maybe they're just swimming. But they're all on the same ocean, you know. And the ocean of life, though we talk about it, or the religions, all the religions talk about the waters of life, the spirit of life. Even if you go to any church. They'll talk about the spirit of God. Again, back to the root word of spirit is breath, spear, S-P-I-R. You know, from a philosophical viewpoint, I guess the question is, is how are you breathing life into the world? And does your faith or does your religious path allow you to breathe life into the world and allow others to breathe life as well, regardless of what their path is? Yeah. You know, your way is not the only way. You know, your way is one way. And then the question is, is what is the truth? And the truth is that we all breathe life, that we all 
feel life. We all want to be seen, to be heard, to be recognized, to be appreciated and loved. You know, food, clothing, shelter, love, recognition, those are the things that everyone wants, regardless of where you are in the world. Those are the things we all hope for, you know, we'll, we live for, or we die for. I believe that one of the most important aspects of mindfulness is, well, in addition to non-judgment, as far as when it gets to which religion, but it's really understanding that mindfulness doesn't supersede your spirituality or your religious practices. It's a way to just get more in touch with not only the inner you, but maybe what's the meta part, you know, what's above you, what's beyond us. Right. And I, I love the definition of mindfulness as well, you know, being present in the moment without judgment. But I think there's one one aspect of mindfulness that I really do like probably uh, more than anything is the ability to gain recognition and choice, the ability to have a, a moment, you know, even if it's 10 seconds to take a breath, to stop, observe, uh, and then proceed, pause, and then proceed. So it's that whole idea of being able to make a different choice. And in the Buddhist worldview, that really is around changing your programming. You know, there are so many people that they observe the faith at the moment that they're there, but then they'll go outside and they'll curse at someone or make a judgment or whatever. And then, you know, they kind of wonder, okay, why do I do that, right? That's, that's a lot of that is programming. A lot of that is, you know, culturally based programming that they've gotten from their mother, their father, their, you know, their, the, the tribe that they're members of, if you will, and, uh, or some re related trauma. So mindfulness by taking that breath, by really being embodied in our bodies, yeah, it, it really does give us the pause to really kind of think, okay, how can I, how can I show up as my best self, you know, for myself as well as for others? Exactly. And I, I, again, think it's so important. I mean, I think it's important in general, but I think it's extremely important right now as we go through this phase we're going through with so much divisiveness. Mm. So, you know, you touched on, we all have the same needs. We all have the same desires. And if we can just understand that instead of all of this divisiveness and, and rhetoric and judgment and just take that pause step, you know, step back and try to be more mindful. I think it would make the world a much better place. Wouldn't it? I thank you so much for your time today. And again, the book is a fabulous, it's, it's like a manual for how to really learn to live mindfully, focusing on these key eight areas. And I really hope that our listeners will enjoy following along and expanding their mindfulness skills. So no, you're very you. kind. Thank you very much, Teresa. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. You can find out more about Keith's book, The Mindful Experience, Eight Strategies to Live Life Now, as well as the Work Mindfulness Institute's coaching and training programs at workmindfulness.com. Thanks again to Keith for joining us today and sharing his wisdom and experience with us. Until next time, I encourage you to meditate daily and be mindful in all of your everyday activities. Simply bring your full awareness to the present moment to build your mindfulness skills, paying attention to every detail of what you're doing, from washing dishes to work tasks to taking a walk. Your mind will wander, and that's normal. Each time you notice it has wandered, 
That's mindfulness. Consider how wonderful the world could be if everyone was mindful. You can help make that happen. It all starts with a mindful moment. Please subscribe to A Mindful Moment with Teresa McKee and rate this podcast so that others can find us. Follow us on social media at A Mindful Moment Podcast. Visit our website, amindfulmoment.com, to access all podcasts and interviews. A Mindful Moment is written by Teresa McKee. The English version is hosted by Teresa McKee, and the Spanish version is translated and hosted by Paola Tile. Intro music, Retreat, by Jason Farnham. Outro music, Morning Stroll, by Josh Kirsch, Meteorite Productions. Thank you for tuning in. This podcast is produced by Work to Live Productions.